Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Tara Brock. Tara is an author, clinical psychologist, and the founder and senior teacher of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington. She's the author of the Sounds True audio learning programs, Radical Acceptance, a Buddhist guide to freeing yourself from shame, and Meditations for Emotional Healing, Finding Freedom in the Face of Difficulty. On this episode of Insights at the Edge, Tara and I spoke about why it's hard to be compassionate towards ourselves and what Tara calls the trance of unworthiness. We also spoke about how to find a true refuge no matter what difficulties we might be experiencing. Tara and I also discussed her new online course on meditation and psychotherapy and the importance of therapists being trained in the practice of awareness and mindfulness. Here's my conversation with Tara Brock. Tara, I think of you as the self-acceptance lady, the the self-acceptance expert, someone who has really studied this and put a lot of time and energy into cultivating self-acceptance and teaching people about it. And what I'd love to know is, why is this so hard? Why is treating ourselves even reasonably kindly consistently the way we would of course treat other people why is it so hard when it comes to treating ourselves with that kind of love and compassion yeah it is so hard <laughs> and you know i think that the the deepest truths are the ones that we forget the quickest and which is you know if we've turned against ourselves we're not going to be able to really be in love with our life in love with the world and and yet we do we it's such a deep reflex and from as much as i can understand um it starts in an existential way that that come taking in, incarnating there's a sense of and it's universal a perception of separateness and with that a sense of something's wrong just a kind of existential something's wrong and you know there's and it's like the primal mood of the separate self is fear and then it gets exacerbated 
through our cultures and families. And the more there's been a kind of wounding, the more there's that sense of something's wrong and I've got to defend myself and I've got to, um, you know, in some way protect. And what happens with that something's wrong is it fixes itself on self. It's not just is something wrong, it's something's wrong with me. That's the first conclusion that we make. It's the kind of primal belief. And um, that's a very deep one to unravel. So then what happens is every time something's challenging or difficult and we have a sense of fear or sorrow or anger, we add what in the Buddhists call the second arrow, which is not only is there this going on, it's my fault and it reflects badly on me. So we keep on weaving ourselves into this kind of web of of not okayness. And I, I think it's pretty much with everyone I've met, there is those layers of it that just need to be seen and uh, released for there to be any real freedom. Well, let's go into that a little bit, because seeing it, releasing it, I mean, how does this unraveling actually work? I mean, it seems to me often when we feel really bad about ourselves, you kind of get to the bottom and it's like, yeah, the bottom is, um, I, there is something wrong with me. Okay. Where do we go underneath that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's different places for bringing mindfulness and often the starting place is the something wrong feeling has kind of a clutch or a grip or a sinking feeling in the body. And the more we bring a attention to that, the less we're identified with it. So there is some way in which just noticing it's happening begins to loosen it. But I also feel like we need to work with the beliefs, and sometimes that means um, what I found is that some people focus more on the belief of I'm bad, I'm failing, I'm insufficient, and then we need to get at where the, the emotions and the visceral senses in the body but many people are just sunk with it sitting with the sinking feeling and then it's really the question is well what are you believing and usually the belief is i've fallen short nobody will ever love me i'll never be able to have what i want and by beginning to name it and name it consciously and name it out loud there is a beginning a dissolution of some of the identification with it. And and there's actually been research on this, Tammy. I, I get so interested in the research these days that, that, this, that in this one was, I think, UCLA, where when we can name it, when we can note what's going on, in the moment of uh, noting w- with awareness what's happening, uh, there is less believing in, identifying with, there is actually a shift in emotion that happens with that, actually a release of some of the fight-flight. So that's a kind of long-winded way of saying we bring, bring presence to the constellation that's happening, both to the fact of the belief and also to the feelings going on in the body. Now, interestingly, you're going to be offering a new online course with Sounds True that's on meditation and psychotherapy and how these two different approaches can be integrated and can work together. And I'm curious, when we're looking at something like a, a feeling of self-blame, any kind of sense that we're not enough, what you think the path of meditation can offer 
and what the path of psychotherapy offers, how they come together, maybe where they have different strengths? Yeah, well, one of the kind of offerings of meditation is training the attention. So in psychotherapy, the the therapist is helping direct attention to different different circumstances, different situations, look at patterns, look at what's going on in the moment. Meditation actually trains us to then take that and continue on our own to have that kind of relationship with our inner life. And I sometimes think of it as as a kind of spiritual reparenting where um, all of us had some deficits in what we needed. And the two, if you asked an infant, well, our very young child, what do you most need? It's, you know, to be seen and also to be loved. And and so we we missed out on some of it. So what meditation does is it brings a, a mindful attention that lets us see what's going on within our own being and hold that with kindness. Those are the two wings of presence, to see what's happening and to have a quality of care about that. And and so that happens in the therapeutic setting, but we actually are training ourselves in meditation to be able to offer that inwardly. And I, I often teach um, therapists that are wanting to bring the skills of meditation into psychotherapy an acronym that can help them kind of systematically um, strengthen someone, help to strengthen someone's attention in that way. And the acronym I use is RAIN. It's R-A-I-N. And it, it helps both the therapist and the client in systematically cultivating mindfulness. And, and the R stands for recognize and the A for allow. So let's say somebody's caught in self-blame and let's say they're feeling like they've let's say there's a breakup in a relationship and they're saying, you know, it's it's my fault, I blew it, no one will ever love me again, you know, I'm unlovable. The R will be, okay, so recognize right now the sense of, of shame, of failure, and the A will be allow it, allow it to be here just for this moment. So that's the beginning of mindfulness, just to, without any, adding on anything, just to recognize and allow what's what's going on. And if... If you want to turn it into a kind of inquiry, the R is, well, what is happening right now? And if you even ask that in this moment, what is happening inside me right now? That starts to develop the quality of recognition, which is key to mindfulness. And if you ask the question, and can I be with this or can I let this be? That's the A, the allowing. So so we begin in um, introducing mindfulness into psychotherapy with this recognizing and allowing what's happening. And, and sometimes the noting, the naming is, is really powerful. With the allowing, um, I sometimes will, some, for some people, it's very helpful to imagine just like you're bowing to what's there. You're just saying, okay, I respect that in this moment, this is what's here. Or, it's my, or for some... Um, I was teaching with uh, Father Thomas Keating at one point a, a weekend on, on compassion, and his way of describing the allowing is to say, I consent. Okay, so I consent to this feeling of of shame or of failure. In this moment, I consent. This is here right now. It's not like saying I believe my thoughts. It's just saying i allowing this experience. And then the eye of rain is to begin to investigate, because sometimes it's such a tangle that the that in a therapeutic setting we can deepen mindfulness with the investigating. 
And that would be to start, as I was describing before, to investigate, well, what am I believing? I'm believing that I've always failed, or I'm believing that that people will always reject me. And then the, the investigation deepens, well, how does it feel to believe that? Oh, I feel this squeeze or this sinking feeling. So that's the I. But the investigating, it's a double I in RAIN, because there's also a quality of intimacy, a kind of intimate attention, where not only are we seeing, okay, there's a belief that I'm going to fail and a feeling, a sinking feeling, but it's a kind of an intimate presence. And it, in a way, there's a the kind of sense of, well, what does this part of me need? And often it needs to feel like it's okay that this is happening or needs to feel kindness. So it may be that when I'm working with somebody and I get to the eye, I might have them put their hand on their heart. And, and just kind of send a message in of, I'm here, or I, I'm accepting this, or I care about this suffering. So that's the R, the A, and the I. The N is non-identification. That when we bring those qualities of presence, of recognizing and allowing, when there's a deepening with the investigation and the intimacy, that presence itself loosens the identification And what people find is when they've been with themselves in that way, that what they are is really the awareness that's paying attention, that that kindness that's holding the space. They're no longer identified with the self that is failing or small. So that's a, a very nutshell summary of this acronym that is really a training in presence that brings together the realms of meditation and psychotherapy for many people in a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious now, now, Tara, I'm going to get a little personal here. I hope that's okay. But be, before the conversation uh, started, when you and I were just speaking, you mentioned to me that you've been undergoing some health challenges. And I know from my own experience that sometimes, whether it's a health challenge or, as you mentioned, other challenges, that's when this self-blame occurs, for me at least, this you know feeling of this mm-hmm. difficult thing has happened and you know something outside of my control, but yet I feel somehow I'm responsible for it. And, and I'm curious if the RAIN process has helped you through uh, your health challenges and, and how, how you've worked with it. Yeah, very much, very much. Um, It's amazing to me for myself when I'm feeling sick and with so many I've worked with how we can be feeling miserable and then add on to that and somehow somehow or other this is my fault and it reflects badly on me. And and that happens to me all the time. Part of what's going on for me is I have connective tissue difficulty, which means I injure myself easily. And every time I injure myself, there's some part of me thinking, oh, there I go again. I was pushing it. I wasn't tuning in. I wasn't listening to my body. You know, so I in some way make it, uh, make myself wrong for the injury. And then it goes even deeper than that, Tammy, where when I'm feeling sick, I end up getting very self-protective and irritable and grumpy and selfish, like, you know, what I want matters more than other people around me. And and then I start really um, disliking myself for the self-absorption that comes with being sick. And that's really painful because there's been, you know, all these years of, 
of practice and touching many, many moments of feeling um, real spaciousness and not having my attention fixated on self and what self needs and what self wants. And then to feel how um, much contraction there is with sickness and not liking the person I become. So what happens, and I'll, give, I'll use this as the example because it's pretty poignant, is that um, last, a few months ago, I, I went through quite a sick spell, and especially with my husband, I was aware of how I just felt like I was not being a nice person. And I remember one morning meditating, and 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 it hit me like a tsunami of how turned I was on myself, that here I was feeling miserable, and I was adding on to this, this bad personhood condemnation kind of thing. And... Um, so I just began doing rain, just to recognize and allow, okay, really turned on myself, really turned on myself, and and let it just be there, the sense of the aversion, of kind of almost ashamed and embarrassed about myself. And so there was just, it was kind of like a pause where I was just saying, okay, allowing this to be here. And then I began to investigate and 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 recognize in the investigation how much I had this ideal of who I should be at all moments and how I was so far from it that, you know, I could barely stomach myself. And then, and with that, you know, sensing this, this place in me that felt so, um, so ashamed. And then I kind of inquired, like, what does this place most need? And so much the sense of uh, forgiving the humanness, just really, um, a, a kindness towards the humanity that was here. So I began to offer a real, what I call an intimate presence, where as I often teach to people, I just put my hand on my heart and I kind of varied the pressure until it was tender. So it was as if I was really communicating to my inner life, it's okay, you know, this humanness is just part of the deal and it's uh, it's really okay. And so that was recognize, allow, investigate, intimate kind of presence. And the more I um, offered that kindness inward, the more the sense of my, who I was was no longer located inside this self that was falling short so horribly as a sick person. It was more, there was just a very a vast, tender awareness that was recognizing what was going on. It was as if... There were waves that were coming and going, but I had returned to a kind of oceanness that uh, felt like home. So, I mean, I'm glad you asked. I wouldn't have thought to share that story, but it's it's been such a teaching to me because I it had been a long time since I had kind of encountered such a distinctive self aversion. I, I teach about it so much that I'm pretty alert to it, but. I think between the fatigue and so on of illness, I just kind of slipped into that uh, that trance. I call it the trance of unworthiness. And it was a powerful waking up, coming back to compassion uh, that I really valued. Now, why do you call it a trance when unworthiness takes us over? You know, when I'm teaching, I'll often say, well, how many of you judge yourself and feel like you judge yourself too much? And most everybody will raise their hand. But then when we start exploring what's not seen, and the trance is whatever's, you know, because we're, we're living in a smaller domain than the, than the truth, the reality of things, is 
people do not see how much the sense of falling short of not being who we want to be affects every moment. So that in any moment that we're aversely judging ourselves, feeling down on ourselves, in those moments we can't really be intimate with other people because there's going to be some way that we feel we have to present to get approval. And we're not really going to be able to relax and sense any wonder or awe in what's right here in the world because, you know, we're there's that sense of I'm not okay, I need to be different with the squeeze of that. And we're not able to take risks because it's too dangerous. And and in the deepest way, we're just not able to live wholeheartedly because we're contracted inside a story about ourselves. So in that way, I feel like it's one of the most deep and pervasive trance states that we live in. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to track back for a second because you've introduced this second eye in RAIN, uh, in addition to investigating, we're being intimate. And and this is where I'm curious where potentially the psychotherapeutic relationship comes in. Because it seems to me that there's something about another person being with us that allows potentially a kind of dropping into a greater feeling of, of intimacy. I'm I'm wondering what you think about that from your experience. Yeah, each piece of rain actually is... Um in a way, made possible and deepened through the therapeutic relationship. We we co-recognize, you know, therapist sometimes points out things, we sometimes realize them ourselves, you know. So the recognizing, it's kind of co-mindfulness. The allowing, when a therapist, uh, you know, basically notices what's going on and says, well, let's slow down here and let's make some room for this. There, That's a support in the allowing. The therapist is co-investigating and for sure, Tammy, probably most important, um, the heart space. Because without, you can't really investigate and see clearly what's going on in the moment if there's not a quality of care. It, um, what happens is that there's, if there's a background of, of, of judgment or non-acceptance, um, it's it flavors everything, so you can't actually see what's going on. The acceptance is what makes it possible. So the therapist's acceptance and and care and compassion actually allows the investigation to go really deep. And I guess part of what I'm curious about is whether or not you believe certain aspects of our sense of unworthiness can heal in relationship with another person, with the therapist, in a way that perhaps uh, would take a lot longer or maybe never even be touched if we were simply working on our own. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think we were wounded in relationship and that the mirroring in relationship is integral to coming to realize our own essential goodness. So whether it's a lover or a therapist or a friend uh, we need uh, we need our relational life as much as we need to cultivate the capacity to see our own goodness and and I don't think of them as one more than the other they're absolutely interrelated and essential both and so in Buddhism before we had psychotherapy that function was performed by the community or by the teacher-student relationship, or, or how do you see that? In both, 
yeah in in buddhism and and i and i love this way of this kind of paradigm it's it's been described as our healing comes by taking the three refuges and one of the refuges that we're talking about here is really this refuge in presence and what's happening in the present moment and this is where we're learning to really pay attention to the truth of moment to moment truth of what we're experiencing and and one of the refuges and and that's maybe described best it's called dharma our truth it's what really is happening the path what's the experience that's real and then another refuge in the Buddhist tradition is refuge in Sangha, our spiritual friends, the, the community of those that are awakening. And in the West, you know, in contemporary spiritual culture, we really think of that as is our relational field, those that we're involved with. And so um, the teacher, our our friends that we meditate with, our parents, our, anyone that we're in relationship with can be part of that realization that we're not separate and, and that reminder of the goodness that's here. Then the, the third gateway to refuge that um, in the Buddhist tradition is refuge in awareness itself, in our Buddha nature. And that refuge is revealed through the other two refuges. I mean, when we're when we're um, paying attention to what's here in the present moment, what we discover is the awakeness and emptiness and vastness of our awareness itself. And when we take refuge in each other, we discover that consciousness and presence that's really uh, the oneness that unites us. And we can learn to turn our attention directly towards awareness and realize that that story of a separate small self that we were believing in was a story. So typically in, in the therapeutic process, the refuge of presence in the, in the, with the present moment experience and in the relational field are the two major gateways, but it can be all three. I guess this is a, another aspect of what I was sort of trying to get at with my question, which is, do you believe that psychotherapy, sort of, you know, from Freud and beyond, has contributed something to human development, human unfolding, even a, a, a potential depth of liberation that we didn't have pre-psychotherapy? Yeah, I do. I think that um, even while the relational field is considered one of the three major gateways to freedom in the Buddhist tradition, I think the actual manifestation and the way it's been unfolded in the West has had a lot more depth and subtlety and emphasis in a way that got overlooked or maybe wasn't a match for other cultures. But I think for, I'll just speak for our culture the deliberate uh, process of being involved with another person or other people and speaking what's true and having it held with a tender presence and having others mirror back what they see is integral to healing and is not um, developed in the Asian spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you were getting? Yeah, at? that is kind of what I'm getting at, and <laughs> okay. I, and I and I I wonder specifically what you think that offers people. Like, what can come from being involved, working with a therapist that you won't get if you just pursue a meditative path? 
Well, let me give let me speak to when um there's been trauma because huge numbers of us have been traumatized. It's so underestimated in this culture. And um, and, and how do you define trauma? Trauma is when we have encountered an out of control frightening experience that has disconnected us from all sense of resourcefulness or safety or coping or love where we've really where we get caught in this looping of fear and then post trauma post-traumatic stress is when um, it's as if we're in past time. We're back in that looping of fear. And whether it's birth trauma, so many people have had, or an accident, or a sudden unexpected loss, we've, en- we've encountered a lot of trauma in our lives. And so when we get caught in post-traumatic stress, when we get caught in that kind of fear, um, it is not the time to go by ourselves and meditate and try to bring presence to the fear for most of us okay for some maybe for some people it can be workable but the alchemy of healing when we've been traumatized we do have to re-experience where the wound or the fear is in our body but we need added resources at at that time so in other words the very definition of trauma is you're cut off from your resourcefulness you don't have it and so it's by being with um, safe others, people that can become a kind of resource that can help to give us a sense of safety or love, that we actually develop what Western psychology calls affect tolerance. We develop the space that we can then re-enter, re-experience what we need to re-experience and have it transformed, have our relationship to it transformed. And in the early days of meditation retreats and so on, you know, people were given the same, everybody was given the same instructions. You know, whatever was coming up, you know, just note it, notice it, see what's happening, open to it, feel it in your body. And for some people where there was trauma, there was re-traumatizing because they did not have the added resources necessary to digest and metabolize and transform through that experience. So that's kind of one of one of the areas that it's clearly essential to have the the accompaniment and the guidance of a therapist. And when I'm working with people, the the first thing I'll do is explore with them how in addition to me and my presence, they can cultivate some inner sense of safe refuge. But that's that precedes the different more traditional meditative skills of coming into the body and feeling what's going on. Hi friends, my name is Jono Fisher. I'm the Executive Director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Some students from Southwest Uganda recently wrote to us and said, in spite of war and violence, Sounds True's materials are helping us really change. We can laugh more. We believe in life again. We can love again. 
And we are even beginning to allow forgiveness and compassion to enter our consciousness. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives, or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. Now, I just want to unpack a little bit what you were saying here. Uh, the, the first step, you said, in healing trauma is that we have to be able to re-experience it. Well, why is that so? That's not the first step. That's what ultimately the alchemy of healing trauma is, that we have to contact where it's living in our body. But there, But what happens is it gets kind of frozen in our body, cut off from the rest of our functioning, but it's still there and it's still, in a way, sending a message to our whole nervous system of something's inherently not okay and can go wrong at any moment. And if I get even a little tip that something's about to go wrong, something similar to whatever went wrong, even if it looks, even if it looks and sounds it a little bit, all the old feelings of uh, really deep, deep uh, danger come up. Yeah. So it's locked in there, and we need a way to re-contact the place in us that's afraid, but with enough new resources, we need to add on what's there to what's there, a sense of safety, a sense of empowerment, a sense of love, a sense it can be different so that we develop a new relationship to it. And this is, this really is um, identical to learning theory, that the way learning happens is we have the same experience but with an ad- additional piece to it that then gives it a new context, a new relationship to the world. So we create new neural patterns around an old experience, in other words. Okay. Does that does that does that context it the way in a helpful way? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know what what you're saying is we have to uh, be able to touch that hidden part within us with enough safety that whatever has been hidden or frozen can come up. And you mentioned that you help your clients develop that safety so they experience it not just sitting with you but inside themselves. Can you give us a sense of how you do that? Sure, sure. And uh, just just to say that one of the teachings that I've, you know, from Carl Jung that, that always struck me, you know, he describes that nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on their environment and especially on their children than the unlived life of the parents. And, and there's this... Uh, notion of unlived life that that has to do with trauma where trauma happens it's kind of a life that happens but it doesn't but we um, freeze and are unable to digest or live it it's the unfelt unseen parts of our psyche get locked in there so so the process of healing is one of recontacting that unlived life, living it through. But to live it through, we need to have some of what we didn't have when we were traumatized, which is some sense of safety, of support, and so on. So one element of that safety, that container, is the therapist and the therapeutic relationship. And then the therapist can very intentionally help the client to find whatever else 
gives a sense of safety. So, for instance, I worked um, I worked some time ago with a woman who was she was abused by her uncle when she was a young girl for many years without her parents knowing it. And then she men- had, as many people do, repeatedly different relationships with men that abused her. And was when she came to see me, her boyfriend was very aggressive. And when he'd get aggressive, when he'd get um, belitt- belittling or whatever, she'd freeze. And um, so she came and, and, and to work with me. And one of the first things that happens with trauma, just the way you and I are talking about with my own health, is that added to the feeling of being traumatized and afraid is a sense of self-aversion for all the ways that we then act. So um, for her, it was, you know, a sense of being weak, a sense of shame for having attracted the same pattern. Um, She was down on herself for the way she would drink when she would get anxious, she had a, a whole laundry list. but So one of the first pieces of therapy really had to do with recognizing that second arrow, how she was in that trance of how bad I am and beginning to just through my way of relating to her and inviting her to even consider the possibility of of forgiving herself for all the ways that that out of that wounding she ended up trying to take care of herself or find some relief. That was one piece. But the main piece, uh, Tammy, really the first maybe six or eight months of the therapy was, okay, when you start feeling scared, what gives you a sense, what can give you a sense of safety or or of feeling loved or okay? And we talked about where she felt it at all in her life, anywhere. And I, and I do, that's one of the questions I ask people is, where do you feel any sense of well-being? Because if I can find that, then whatever that constellation is in them, I, we can then strengthen those neuropathways. And so for her, um, she felt a sense of ease and acceptance and comfort with her sister and with her best friend and then also with me. And so we did a kind of meditative process where she just practiced bringing up the three of us in her mind and imagining us kind of around her, creating a circle of, you know, light of her kind of her spirit allies, creating a uh, a safe space for her, a loving safe space. And we did it a lot of times, you know, where she would just call, not when she was scared, but just when she was feeling okay, but just so she could get used to visualizing and imagining and calling on that kind of um, a healing safe space. And then in, for another number of months, we would practice um, where she would just get in touch a little bit with, you know, have a, a memory and just t- tap in a little bit to where she was, where she would get afraid and then call on the three of us to kind of be with her in that. So she'd imagine kind of going in and out of where she was afraid till she started getting some facility with contacting this fearful parts of her, the memories and the places in her body that she felt um, when she'd feel isolated or scared, and then calling on her uh, safe refuge. So we practiced that a lot. And... um, Gradually, she felt a little stronger in it. And interestingly, the time that she got really challenged, which was she had a breakup with this with her partner, and he was very, very threatening. She went over and spent the night at her friend's house, but she, but it kicked off 
a lot of trauma. She, um, her friend had fallen asleep, and she just kept on calling on us and calling on us and feeling, you know, feeling like she was, you know, something in her was ripping apart. But, um, but she just kept on. It was a prayer, really. Please be with me. Please hold me. Please protect me. And shaking and really, really scary. But she felt like she. Um, something split open and she really felt like she was resting in a loving presence that could hold that was holding and could hold the fear so that um the ocean was bigger than the waves she was in a place of wholeness and she the way she discovered she recovered her soul she felt like she had lost her soul to these men that she recovered it so this was this is actually as with any rain process you know she had brought such a profound intimate attention and and calling on us helped to strengthen that intimate presence until there was really a a shift in her sense of her own identity I, i love that story and i can really feel it as you're describing this woman and how she was able to contact this sense of a safe place i'm curious how being a meditator how meditating could help someone in the development and contact of a safe space. You've described it in this instance in terms of helping someone through a psychotherapeutic process, through working with you, find that. But how how does meditation help with that? I think for any of us, we can ask ourselves, when is it that I feel most loved or safe or protected in what in some way and um and then invoke it so when i work with people and i ask that question some people will say well um i i feel it when i remember jesus when i remember the love of jesus or mother mary and some some you know the there is a story of the dalai lama of a man that was very frightened and went to him and asked him for a meditation. He said, imagine that you're resting in the heart of the Buddha. And so, and for some people, when I say, what gives you that sense? They'll say, my dog, imagining and feeling my dog's presence. And for some people, it's being in nature. So so we ask ourselves, what reminds me? What reconnects me with a sense of really being um, taken care of? And I, for myself, um, when I am, especially with this, the health struggles I've been in, and you know, facing like everybody faces at times the real sense of, wow, this body is not going to make it for that long. It's not going to make it forever, and you know, all the fear and aloneness that comes up in that. What I do is I sense to myself, well, what is it I most, you know, what can I turn to? What if I was, if I had three minutes to live, what would I most want to remember? What would I most want to connect with that would take care of it all, you know? And for me, it's it's loving presence. Like if I can, in some way, remember loving presence, and and then I'll ask other people or myself, well, what would that really be like? That's just words. And for me, there's a sense of light and warmth and a sentience that's inside me and around me, but aware of this life that's right here. So there's a, it's kind of a sense of a presence that is aware of me and loves me. But when I really um, sense that loving and awareness right here, it's bathing me with light 
And if I then go into it even more deeply, the light's coming from inside me too, and then there's a merger into it. So in a sense, the prayer, the calling on that loving presence, is a bridge from the longing to the belonging. It's like it starts out dualistic when we need um, something. We feel like we need it from outside. It starts out with a sense of duality, but if we imagine it and call on it, then we find that we're really calling on our own awakened heart. It's already here. So that's a process, Tammy, that I teach a lot of people, and we might call it you know, prayer or mindful prayer or meditation, but it's really um, calling on the refuge that we really long for, imagining it, and then experiencing it. I love that. It seems in many ways that could be even a shortcut to the RAIN technique. Just go directly, pray directly for that loving refuge. The the challenge to that is, unless there's a lot of presence, there's not access to it. So it you have to have a certain amount of presence to feel the longing and to pray. And then that in turn deepens presence. And um, I've been doing a lot of writing recently on on prayer because more and more I feel like it's um, I'm feeling the power of it in my own life, and I'm aware that it it's apt, it's entirely um, based on presence. Explain what you mean by that. By it's based on presence, I'm not sure I'm following. It seems like most people, even when they don't have much presence, they're in a ditch, whatever. They can come up with a prayer. Well. This power of the prayer correlates with the depth to which we feel the longing. So if it's a reflexive, uh, oh, help me, oh, help me, that's really natural and really human. But if we can be really present with the longing so that we really go, we, we, we immerse into it, we drop into it, we feel into it, so that there's a sense of what am I really longing for? What am I? What's really this longing? What do I really, really want? Initially, prayer is for relief. Just give me relief. But what am I really, really wanting? Well, for me, initially, it's like um, take this pain away or reassure me that I'm going to live longer or whatever it is. But what I'm really longing for, if I get in touch with it deeply, Tammy, is I want to trust my belonging. I want to trust belonging to to love, belonging to awareness. Like, that's the longing. And those words don't even count. I have to feel it viscerally, like, please, please, in, the, in, in a very deep way. And when I feel it that deeply, then when I reach out towards it, it's already there. And, and the, another way to understand this is that to long for something, you have to have internal knowledge of it. And it's only if you inhabit the longing, you settle back into its source. In other words, if I'm longing for love, I have to already know about love. It already has to be what I am on some level. So the longing is like this current that carries me home to what I already am. Back to presence, unless I'm really present with the longing, there's not that kind of immersion in it. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that the deeper we can contact uh, what it is we're really looking for, then the, the, the deeper we can discover it. That there's a... That's you know, right. Yeah. That's exactly right. The, if you really know what you're looking for, you're already there. You're already in it. There, and I, I want to share... A, this is John O'Donohue, how he puts it, because he's really 
I think, says it beautifully. He says, prayer is the voice of longing. It reaches outwards and inwards to unearth our ancient belonging. Mm. So there's a way in which you have to really go inward, inward, inward to the source. It's a kind of you're tracing back the longing to its source. And then in one way that I sometimes frame it to myself is, isn't it true that what I'm longing for is already here? Because if I really pay attention to here, it's embedded in here. It's embedded in the longing that's here. Hmm. Beautiful. Now, Tara, I'm so glad that you're teaching this new online course with Sounds True that's going to be on meditation and psychotherapy integrating mindfulness into clinical practice. And I'm, I'm particularly happy about this because I would love for more and more therapists to be using mindfulness and, and meditation in their practice. And, you know, I'm a, a big fan of therapy, as maybe you can tell from this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I've been in therapy many, 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 many years, and have found it tremendously helpful. And yet, Often when I talk to people, people who live in different parts of the country, they say, well, that's great, Tammy, you know, you can find a fabulous therapist there in Boulder, but I can't find the kind of person who has enough sophistication and depth to to really help me. And I think to myself, yeah, I wonder what percentage of therapists out there are are really operating at a deep enough level that, you know, I would find them effective. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that, what your thoughts are about the evolution within the psychotherapeutic field of more and more people being trained in meditation and mindfulness and kind of where you think the field's going. Yeah, well, I can say personally, I get more requests than I can possibly tell you for referrals to therapists that know how to... um, drawn meditative strategies, like continual. And the invitations I get the most of nowadays are to come and teach therapists about meditation, how to integrate it. So it's it feels like, in my realm, a real happening. And I think of meditation as... Um, as integral to the evolution of consciousness and very much being recognized in the West as... Um, as as val- being valued in the West for just that reason, which is that it's all about learning to pay attention, and and therapy is fantastic about bringing a a loving and intelligent attention to what's going on within us. And if therapists can then bring to that these tools that actually train people how to bring a real empower them to pay attention themselves in an ongoing way, then it gets integrated in in a uh, in a kind of dimensionality that is really, really uh, powerful. So I, I think it's happening. I mean, I, I think it's already going on. There's a reason why almost every major psychotherapy conference in the country has many, many workshops on something to do with mindfulness or meditation. I mean, it's, it's in the culture. And what do you see, if you could have it kind of your way in terms of the future of the practice of psychotherapy. What kinds of therapists do you think we would be seeing active in the world? What would their training be? How would they approach therapy? 
I, I can't imagine a good training in um, how to do therapy that didn't include training people um, in both and I, I didn't really go through it on this in this particular conversation, but having the skills of how to um, stabilize the mind, quiet the mind, open the mind to what's happening in the moment, reach out towards love, you know, all these skills that would those that would be considered an integral part of the training in psychotherapy. So, in a larger way, Tammy, it would be to honor that more and more people are recognizing that what they want on the planet isn't to rerun their patterns of, of, you know, being a separate self, striving, busy, and on their way to kind of more small-minded goals. There's more and more of a yearning to recognize the depths of who we are. And whether we call it the human potential movement, our spiritual transcendence, people want to be all that they can be. And therapy, the the therapy that we're evolving towards in our culture, my hope, is that therapists would be really dedicated to both exploring their own process and um, awakening themselves in these ways and really holding a space for people to um, discover all the dimensions of their being. I, I love that. I mean, personally, I have this feeling that the profession of being a psychotherapist is one of the most sacred professions if it was approached in the way that you're describing. It is. It's the shaman of our culture. It's the priest of our culture in a way that is not burdened by a lot of the overlays and and confusions that come with religion. So I'm right there with you. Yeah. Okay. And just one final question, Dara. You mentioned that you've been doing a lot of writing and you, you know, one of the topics that clearly you're writing on is about prayer and longing. And I'm curious what else you've been writing about. Well, I'm writing a book right now called True Refuge. And uh, the, the premise is that when we get stressed, when we get afraid, when we encounter or approach loss, which every one of us is, um, we our habit is to go towards what I call false refuge, and that's just all the different ways we try to control and manage our life. And that to really let those times be an opportunity to um, to discover the possibility of profound love and freedom, and how to do that. It's so, and it talks about really three gateways to a fearless heart, some of which we've talked about. Really, the gateway of how to turn towards presence with what's right here, turn towards love, or a sense of relatedness, and really the profound investigation into awareness itself. Who are we? Tara, thank you so much. I always love speaking with you. So refreshing. It's, it's the same. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. Be well. Okay, take good care. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. 
soundstrue.com, waking up the world.